Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your man Montel Jordan, and this is how we do it. And right now, you're listening to Legal Face Off on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the high energy legal podcast with lawyers Rich Lenkov and Tina Martini. And they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues, sports, entertainment, politics. Nothing is off limits. Keep listening because this is how we do it. What's going on, everyone? Welcome into another edition of the Legal Faceoff here on WGN Radio. Kevin Wells hosting for the first time for the very busy Joe Brand, second time on the show. Thank you for all for having me back. And as always, we welcome in Tina Martini of McDermott, Will and Emery, and Rich Lankoff of Downey and Lankoff. The midterms are over, so is the governor's race, but the conversation and debate over the Safety Act is strong, especially when it comes to electronic monitoring. Here to go over specifics is Cook County Sheriff Tom Dart. Sheriff, congrats on your fifth term, and welcome back to WGN and Legal Faceoff. I love being on the show. Thanks for having me. So, Sheriff, the uh, Safety Act, like Kevin mentioned, went into effect in January. Among its many provisions, and it's a big act, you know, is allowing people on electronic monitoring to have two days of unmonitored movement while the legislature presumably intended for this to include things like grocery shopping and other essential tasks. It's recently been revealed through records from your office that some defendants have used this time for other purposes. Uh, can you elaborate on what other things are going on during this period that people are supposed to be using to you know, tend to their essential needs? You know, and, you know, that was the thing that was interesting. The Safety Act, most of the attention goes around uh, the bail portions of it. But the real impact, in, uh, particularly in the county that I see is going to play out, is going to be on the whole monitoring part of it, which uniquely only really impacts the Cook County Sheriff's Office because we're the largest in the country, let alone in the state. And the rest of the state, there's hardly anybody that has electronic mind. So this part of that bill was put forward against our wishes with absolutely no idea why it was needed. So what the bill says is that for all the people I have on home monitoring, which is a little over 2,000 people on any given day, two days a week, I basically shut their machines off. Now, some of the really disingenuous or stupid, take your pick, people on the other side say, oh, no, the law doesn't prohibit you from monitoring. But you'd have to be, as they say, either disingenuous or a moron, not to understand that when there are no boundaries because you have free movement, I can't be watching a thousand people as they run around because they're not supposed to not be anywhere. They're supposed to be running around. And so basically this bill was passed. It says all the people on home monitoring, 2000, get two days a week to go wherever they want. And we shut the machine off. Here are the multiple problems. A, of the 2000 people on home monitoring, because of bail reform that occurred in Cook County years ago, the vast majority of all the people on home monitoring are charged with violent offenses. I have over 100 people charged with murder or attempt murder on my home monitoring program. And there's no distinction. They get to wander around for two days free as well. The vast majority, about 60 percent of the people on home monitoring are charged with gun offenses. And so it's a very violent group of people to start with. But here's the other part that just blows me away is prior to this bill going in place. The court had the ability to give movement to everybody on the program, and about 80%, 80% of the people on home monitoring got movement. A judge said, okay, we'll give you movement to go back and forth to work, go back and forth to uh, your job. 
to go to your mother's house, to tend to your mother's needs, who's older and having issues. But what it did is it allowed me, A, to check it out, to make sure there was a job. But B, it allowed me to know that if during that movement, you're not at school, as a matter of fact, you're on the other side of town, you're in violation. I know it. It sets off alarms and we can do something about it. So when I asked, why in God's name did you do this? The people behind it told me is because the, the defense lawyers was taking too much of their time to fill the forms out for movement. And I would suggest to you, if that is your reason, that is a really horrible reason to endanger people's lives. And it has. As you mentioned before, the statistics are what you would expect. When we have free movement, they're committing new offenses out there. We've had four people murdered, four people on home monitoring murdered while out on free movement. We've had case after case. Just this past week, I get the list of everybody who committed a new offense while on home monitoring. We had... I think it was eight people committed violation. Three of them uh, were because there was outstanding warrants from years ago that just popped up. The other five, guess what? All five of those occurred while on free movement. And it wasn't a parking violation. They were shootings. And so the people on home monitoring know they get two days to do whatever they want and no one's watching them. And that's when the crimes are occurring. So this is just really bad, bad legislation that needs to be fixed. So, Sheriff, I mean, it sounds like what you're saying is that there is a way to practically track these defendants, even when they're doing essential tasks. It's just we're not doing it right now under the legislation as it currently stands. Well, we, we, we have the, the, the monitors on their leg, but we, the way we break it out is the, each there's two different cohorts of a thousand people. They, so one group gets their free movement on Monday and Wednesday, one on Tuesday and Thursdays. Um, so basically, there's a thousand people out there at any given time. I do not have a thousand employees. No, and everyone knows that. I mean, the people putting the, the bill together knew that. Um, I don't have a thousand people standing in front of a screen watching their dot for the day to see where they go. But think about that for a second. If that person went into a high crime area, he might have a cousin who lives on that block. So it doesn't set any alarms off. So you have these dots moving all over a screen, but they're not supposed to not be anywhere. They're allowed to be everywhere. So it's not setting alarms. The only thing we can do is after the shooting has occurred, after the homicide has occurred, can we then go backwards? Yeah, but for those victims of those crimes, I have a sneaking suspicion. They would have really liked us to stop the crime, not just catch the person afterward. And that was what is confounding me. This is the height of making the streets less safe for no reason. No reason. And once again, I would suggest to you this would be something be acceptable if my home monitoring program was what it used to be, which is all drug offenders and retail thieves and stuff, because you know, the likelihood of crime less so. When the, the program is the vast majority are all charged with violent crimes, what in God's name are we doing? Well, it sounds like you agree, Sheriff, that there might be some of this pool of people who do, in fact, deserve to do some things like taking care of relatives, grocery shopping. In fact, advocates of the program like Cook County Public Defender Sharon Mitchell have said that this actually makes communities safer because you're allowing people to do these essential tasks. I know you're shaking your head because you totally disagree, but um, that could have been done and was done under the old program, right? And I, I respect uh, Sharon Mitchell a great deal. He's a very passionate, intelligent, hardworking person. He's a great person. We just horribly disagree on that. There is no way you could look at this and say it's made the streets safer. I mean, I don't care where you are on the spectrum. 
how in God's name can you say it made the streets safer when we have this pool of violent people charged with violent cases who were being monitored? And even when they were going on the, when they're being monitored, they were allowed to go to school. They were allowed to go to work. They were allowed to go and help a relative out. We allowed that all the time. Um, but yet we were able to monitor them to this period where the same group of violent people all know for two days, we're not watching you whatsoever. And I have all this evidence, as I said, week after week of new crimes being committed that weren't being committed before. Okay. So I, as I say, I deeply respect Sharon, but that is literally the opposite of what's going on in the real world. That's not true. So Sheriff, what are you doing to have this provision change? We've been negotiating with people down in Springfield for probably over a year now, because when this thing first bubbled up before they passed the bill, we knew the whole thing was insane. And so we were talking with them about it back then. And then since it went into place, we've been talking with people over and over again, giving them data, explaining to them, A, the data shows that this is making the streets more dangerous, but then saying, listen, here's this other alternative. And so there's negotiations going on right now. Our hope is that we can get it to where it's a court ordered type of a thing where the lawyers go in front, heaven forbid, oh my God, heaven forbid these lawyers have to work a full eight hours, heaven forbid. Um, as someone who sits in this office for 12 hours virtually every day, I can tell you I have limited sympathy for people who are sitting there saying I have to spend another hour working, doing paperwork. Um, but the way it should work is that the attorneys go in front of a judge, they evaluate whether this person is so dangerous because they say we have murderers on this. And they, the judge might sit there and say, then uh, time out. You already have the gift of a lifetime. You're doing your pretrial stay at home, not in the jail. We're not allowing you any movement. That would be absurd. You're charged with a murder. Or he might sit there and say, all right, this is a case where he clearly has this well-paying job. We do not want him to lose it. Here's what we'll do. Monday through Friday, he starts at nine, ends at five. We'll give him an hour and a half on either end. And that would work brilliantly. All those things could be done. The proper form is in front of a judge who would take all these facts and be able to sort through it. And we already had in the past, and we'd continue to do emergencies. We would get it all the time. We'd get a call from someone on EM saying, I'm having heart palpitations. I fell down. I broke an ankle. And we would absolutely say, go to the hospital. We'll deal with it later and we'll figure it all out. There was never anybody violated because they went to the hospital or anything like that. So there is a way to do this. Sheriff, turning your attention to another issue I know you're very passionate about. Um, you know, I've got a friend who actually listens to the show. He's an attorney. He lives in Naperville. And uh, yesterday we were talking about a new car he bought. Pretty nice car. He's a pretty successful guy. I said, bring that car down. Let's grab dinner uh, this week. Come to like Fulton Market. We'll, we'll grab dinner. I'll see your car. Guess what he said? I'm sure you know what he said coming from Naperville. So I'm, I not, coming, yep. I'm not coming to Chicago. I'm going to get carjacked. Yeah, yeah. I know this yep. is an issue you're working hard on. Uh, could you update us on your efforts to deal with this? You need, in some ways, it's unique to Chicago. In many ways, it's not. But, but what's going on in Chicago with uh, carjackings? You know, that, that's a great question because, yes, have they all they gone up all around the country? Uh, it's startling rate. Yes, they have. But nowhere has the rate been anything like Chicago. And anybody that tells you otherwise is not telling you the truth. If you took L.A., New York, I think Minneapolis and one other city combined all theirs into one number. It's still less than our number annually. So we have a unique problem as far as the magnitude, but it's going up everywhere. Um, the, we have had some success. The numbers are less than last year, but last year's numbers were bad. Um, so we've seen about a, almost a little less than a 10 percent drop from last year. 
The things I can tell you that we've put in place that have been helpful is we got our county board to uh, purchase a helicopter for our office, which I, I go out with our people at times. I haven't done it in the last couple of months, but I've been out there quite a few times. And when we have a helicopter up, oh, my God, is it a game changer? I mean, literally not even just from catching people, but also doing the safest way possible so there isn't high-speed pursuits. Um, the other thing, though, is the tracking of cars. And I'd be lying to you if I were to tell you that we've got that all handled. The car manufacturers have been a confounding group of people. It, it, they literally are what you would imagine. They're all competitors, and they all have their different agendas. Some, like General Motors, have been phenomenal working with us. There's literally nothing else we can ask of them. They've been great. One of their cars gets stolen. We're on the phone with them immediately. The tracking starts. And I can't emphasize, we get those cars, we get the people in them, and we get them quick before a new crime has been committed. Other manufacturers, it is insane what they make us go through. And at the end, many of them don't even have the tracking available for us on the weekends because they don't only work Monday through Friday. So we've tried to get laws passed in both the federal level and the state level to mandate a 24-hour hotline manufacturers have to operate we had some movement in Springfield, but then that slowed down like Springfield normally does. Um, so we're hoping to get that rolling again and see if we can get something done with that. Uh, but that's a real linchpin here. And the argument against it is non-existent. There isn't one. I mean, I've had some absurd arguments talking about privacy or something. The tracking's already in the car. I'm not putting tracking on the car. I'm, and I can only access it when your car's been car carjacked. So, you know, the other stuff gets really silly. Uh but those are like the big things. And then this task force we've been operating in where ourselves and Chicago combined resources with the uh, FBI and the like, that's been helpful. But we've got a long way to go. And, you know, there's some of the arguments we made that the downtick in the carjackings is in direct proportion to the uptick in the straight thefts of cars because of this whole thing with Kias and Hyundais where uh, the Internet went, it went viral on TikTok on how to steal them because it's so simple that those are being stolen at a rate we've never seen before. They, I think they're up 180% or something like that. So there's an argument to made, well, yeah, the carjacking has gone down because it's easier just to steal the car from in front of a house. So we've got a lot of problems on our hands here. And our, really our only way out of it is going to be technology. And the people who can pull that off, the manufacturers are just not being helpful other than, as I say, a handful of them. And that's disturbing. Well, thank you, Sheriff Dart, for joining us here on WGN and Legal Faceoff, covering a lot of stuff there. We certainly appreciate all the insight from a firsthand perspective. Uh, and again, uh, you can check out more details on the Safety Act, obviously, online at WGN Radio and WGNTV.com. Sheriff Dart, thank you so much. Thank you guys so much. I really enjoyed it. Thanks again. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Downey & Lenkoff, a firm with offices in Illinois, Indiana, and Wisconsin. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like McDonald's, Target, Macy's, Wendy's, and the Chicago Bears for his zealous advocacy and outstanding litigation results. Rich's many accolades include being named as an Illinois super lawyer from 2015 to present and leading lawyer from 2012 to present. These are designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, serving on the Legal Prep Charter Academy Advisory Board and the Northern Illinois University College of Law Board of Visitors. 
Rich is also a producer with credits including 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and Mike Ditka. Renegades, a Caesars Palace production starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon, Rock of Ages, and Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel in Concert. In addition to hosting WGN's Legal Faceoff since 2014, Rich serves as a legal analyst for a variety of media outlets. Downey & Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Downey and & Lenkoff, please visit dl-firm.com. We're back here on legal face-off topic number two, but certainly a topic that has likely had an impact on pretty much everyone listening at one point or another. Does Ticketmaster hold a monopoly on ticket sales? A question that's been asked for about a decade. For that, we welcome in the former policy director of the Federal Trade Commission and current public interest antitrust lawyer, David Balto. David, you testified in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee years ago that this is, in fact, the case. Very curious to hear what you have to say. Welcome to Legal Faceoff. Well, Ticketmaster certainly is a monopoly. It had tremendous power 12 years ago. Allowing it to acquire Live Nation was like um, prescribing um, ice cream to someone who was chronically obese. Um, it's just made the condition much worse. So, David, well, thank you very much. We'll get into that in a moment. I think for those of our listeners who'd like to know a little bit more detail about what happened and what's precipitating this discussion, let's pivot to a couple of weeks ago when many thousands of Taylor Swift fans were in online pre-sale queues to purchase tickets for her upcoming concert. Me included, by the way. (laughs) Did you get tickets, Rich? Uh, I I did to Minneapolis, but my daughter (laughs) went through, my daughter, who's 17, as you know, went through, I don't know, nine hours of misery and all of the emotions on the the scale. As did, you know, hundreds of thousands of others that we've seen on TikTok, so. Yeah. And many had no luck. Um, And at the same time, as people were standing in the virtual queue, there were many resale sites that were selling the very same seats for thousands of dollars. Two days later, Ticketmaster said it was canceling the public sale of tickets because of, quote, extraordinarily high demands on ticketing systems and insufficient remaining inventory to meet that demand which I think translates into they ran out of tickets. So, David, how did this happen? How did we get here with Ticketmaster and Live Nation? Well, unfortunately, we've allowed one firm to dominate both concert promotions and ticketing. And the result has been, um, you know, not only higher prices. If you look at the fees that you pay to buy tickets on Ticketmaster, they've escalated over the years. And it's not for any reason. It's not like their costs have increased. Um, But uh, accompanying that has been a deterioration of service. And they simply aren't capable of delivering the kind of service that's necessary for consumers to get the tickets that they need. So, David, explain that a little bit more, because you testified, as we mentioned earlier, uh, in in 2009. It ultimately went through... um, but what I mean, we hear these terms, and a lot of our listeners are not, you know, antitrust experts. We hear antitrust, we hear monopoly, we hear the government being involved. Why is it like feeding ice cream to someone who's obese? What is the problem in a free market, after all? 
in a democracy where companies are supposed to be allowed to take risks and operate uh, without the you know hard hand of the government, why is it a problem for these two companies to get together? And uh, why is that a monopoly, in your opinion? Because if this merger had not occurred, you could have expected another ticketing alternative to arise in the market and take on Ticketmaster's monopoly and deliver lower prices and better service. So if it is a monopoly, what, what went wrong? Why did the government allow it to go through if, it's so clear, if it was so clearly a monopoly? Yeah, well, you know, sometimes when it comes to antitrust enforcement, the book of Profiles and Courage is going to be a very thin one. And the uh, government just simply didn't have the, um, you know, the sense of its responsibility to challenge the merger. Now, fortunately, there is no statute of limitations under the Clayton Act, the Anti-Monopoly Act, and they can challenge a merger whenever. Um, and so the Department of Justice is currently investigating the merger and hopefully will take action to unravel, unravel this merger. Some of the most important monopolization cases brought by the Department of Justice, the AT&T case and the Microsoft case, are cases where they required divestitures that um, improved competition significantly. So, David, in those cases that you mentioned, and in this particular case, how realistic is it given that this merger now has been in place since 2010? And how often do we see precedent for breakups um, of this magnitude, especially for mergers that have been in place for as long as this one's been? You know, that's a fabulous question, Christina. The real problem here is where eggs get scrambled. And as you know, you can't unscramble eggs. But here, the businesses have really been relatively distinct. And so requiring a divestiture of Live Nation at this point in time would not be a significant problem. David, what, I mean, what, I've had this debate because I've been, you know, so to speak, a victim of this for a while. I mean, I, Tina, uh, Tina is a huge Springsteen fan. I'm a big Springsteen fan, seeing him over, you know, 115 times. We went through this just a few months ago when Springsteen tickets went on sale. And to a smaller degree, this whole mess happened then. So I've had this debate with lots of people uh, in the community. And, you know, on the one hand, I have an issue with the amount of fees charged like everyone else. I think it's somewhat disgusting to charge fans that much. On the other hand, I do believe in the law of supply and demand. And, you know, in the wake of COVID, when there was no touring, there was no shows for a couple of years. And to be fair, these artists were without the most significant part of their income, knowing that they don't sell records anymore. So this is really where Taylor Swift, Bruce Springsteen makes their money. And not just them, this is easy to vilify the individual and say, well, the Springsteen need more money. But there's a whole, you know, there's thousands of thousands of people who are earning as a result of these shows. So, uh, you know, basic supply and demand means that there's lots of people who want this product, in this case, tickets, and there's a limited supply. So what's wrong with charging as much as you possibly can given the limited supply. I think another way of looking at this, um, Rich, is to um, think about 
who's providing what and what is the value for what's being provided. And what's being provided here is really the performance. The performer is providing the value. And a huge amount of the wealth actually is going to these middlemen who just figure out ways of gaming the system and increasing the cost of the um, of the good. Um, I don't think that makes any sense. And so I think there can be efforts made um, a first important step is breaking up Ticketmaster and Live Nation, but looking at the overall ticketing system so that the person who provides value is the person who receives value is very important. A really excellent answer because, you know, it is true that if you just break it down to supply and, de- and demand, you know, the demand is for the show. The demand isn't for the middleman selling tickets. And I think that's a really excellent point, excellent way of looking at it. Um, so short of a breakup, which, as you said, is like putting toothpaste back in the tube or unscrambling eggs, uh, what recourses are available to ensure that uh, this doesn't happen? And, and what can fans do? What should they do short of the government coming in and breaking up this huge company? There are potent, There is potential for state legislation um, for this situation, especially on the role of the secondary ticket market, which really needs to be regulated. We've permitted, um, Rich, I, I love the free market as much as you do. Well, maybe a little less. But, um, um, you know, what secondary ticket uh, brokers do um, is not produce any value whatsoever. And all they do is greatly inflate the cost of tickets. That's something that the state should look at uh, for regulation to try to limit that. David, thank you so much for joining us today. The former policy director of the Federal Trade Commission and current public interest antitrust lawyer. Thank you for providing some insight on this story. Sure, it's not the end of this one. I'm sure we're going to hear quite more in the future on this. But again, thank you for joining us here on WGN. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Welcome back to the show here on WGN Radio, talking about now the uh, head trauma in football, a constant topic that finds itself in the news cycle. A former widow of a USC college football player seeking $55 million from the NCAA, claiming that NCAA failed to protect him from repetitive head trauma, and that ultimately led to his death. And for that, we welcome in attorney Landis Barbie with Safran Law Offices. Landis, how are you today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so Landis, as Kevin mentioned, this is a uh, really first-of-its-kind trial in that it actually went to verdict. Uh, Verdict, uh, jury came back last week and ruled it in favor of the NCAA. This was an allegation, as Kevin mentioned, by the widow of a former USC linebacker who played from 88 to 92. He actually played with a number of other uh, linebackers who also died before the age of 50. One of those people was... Junior Seau, ex-charger, Hall of Famer, uh, one of the most famous cases of alleged CTE resulting from playing football. Um, We'll talk about that piece in a moment. But the significance of this is that it's really the first of its kind to go to a verdict. Lots of these cases, as you've written about in your excellent piece on offthecourtdocket.com, lots of cases uh, uh, um, go to, uh, or, or there's lots of claims. A lot of those claims turn into lawsuits. A lot of those lawsuits might even go to trial, but none of them so far have gone to a verdict. So why was this the case 
you think that made it all the way to a verdict? I just think they didn't want to settle this case. And I think there were multiple issues. The NCAA had a good position in that the cause of death was was different or the cause of death was multiple things when the medical examiner reviewed it of cirrhosis, alcohol complications, different things like that. Now, on the flip side of that, the geese had uh, uh, Matt Gee's brain examined by Boston University's doctors posthumously. And in that, the Boston University doctors came to the conclusion that he died because of CTE. Matt had CTE and he died because of CTE. I think both sides had great positions and great arguments and they felt that it wasn't enough to settle. I mean, you got a large damage amount of $55 million and the NCAA was not going to pay that $55 million. And so they decided to to go to a verdict and see what happened. And ultimately, it was it was in favor of the NCAA. So let's be clear here, because the key point in this case was causation, right? Um, yes. And it wasn't really in dispute whether he had CTE. That's something that most, you know, medical experts can look at your brain and 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 you know agree upon. What was very much in dispute, and ultimately what was ruled in uh, why the jury ruled in favor of the defendants, the NCAA, was what caused that condition, um, and that was. Uh, the NCAA argued that we don't know what caused it. It's impossible to prove for a couple of reasons. Number one, uh, this happened 40 years before, and uh, Guy never gave notice of it. Uh, when he played, he didn't actually report that he had any concussion, let alone any head trauma. So how are we supposed to uh, you know, prove causation this many years later? Number two, Always an allegation, you know, there's the, the answer always in these cases is that how do we know that during during the short period of time that you play for USC, the four year period, that that playing period was the cause of your current condition or the condition that caused your death rather than your subsequent career playing for the NFL or your prior career playing Pop Warner, playing high school football, etc. Very difficult even for medical experts to pinpoint. It is very difficult for medical experts to point, especially since it wasn't until 2005 that we realized that CTE can result from football injuries when a doctor revealed it in a study and in a journal. And the, that's part of what the NCAA leaned on in their case was that, hey, this wasn't a thing until 2005 when the study revealed it, and that was in an NFL player. And by the way, you know, let's look at his medical application for the Los Angeles Raiders that he had to fill out for training camp. And in that application, he never he never checked the box that he had a concussion or any head trauma or any head injuries like that. The geese tried to counter that. The geese tried to say the NCAA did know about head trauma. They did know about CTE. But ultimately, uh, it, it became a lack of evidence because from 1933 to 1966, there were these journals missing from the NCAA that they had published in those years. And they never, the geese never were able to, to utilize those journals. So it became a lack of, of knowledge, so to speak, from the, from the NCAA. Yeah, the other piece of evidence that the jury did not get a chance to see, uh, as we referenced earlier, was some key testimony, some key evidence about uh, Guy's teammates. As I mentioned, he played at USC as a linebacker from 88 to 92. During that same time period, his teammates, uh, other linebackers for USC, later died before the age of 50. One of those people was Junior Seau. The jury was not allowed to hear evidence of that. The court ultimately found that the value of that was more prejudicial than it was probative, and they uh, did not allow the jury to hear that. How important a ruling do you think that was, and might it have changed the outcome had they known that 
uh, other people who he played with, other linebackers died. Perhaps it wasn't because of his obesity or medical, uh, his prior medical history or cocaine use or all, or his alcohol use. All things that the NCAA alleged were the more likely cause of his death versus his playing with USC. I think it was a massive ruling. I mean, think about what you just said. You didn't say he was one of five members of USC's team. You didn't say he was one of five members of USC's defense. You said he was one of five linebackers. That's one position group. And five of them died before the age of 50. One of them being Junior Seau. One of them being Matt Gee. And both of those, it was ruled that um, they had CTE. So I think it was a massive ruling that would have possibly flipped, turned the tables, and maybe the Geese would have won here if it had been allowed. So in 2016, uh, Landis, the NCAA, much like the NFL uh, earlier, agreed to settle a class action concussion lawsuit. Uh, They agreed to pay $70 million to monitor college athletes' medical conditions, $5 million towards medical research and payments up to $5,000 towards individual players claiming injuries. Uh, two questions. Number one, why wasn't Gee precluded from suing because of this uh, settlement? And number two, why would the NCAA tacitly admit to some liability by paying that amount of money, perhaps, but they did not agree to any liability in this case? Is that a inconsistency on their part? The Guy did not join in on the settlement action, and that's the main reason why he was allowed to continue to pursue this. Uh, the NCAA, it's tough to to reconcile sort of what they did here, but they ultimately did not want to admit responsibility for this one. I understand in the previous one, they sort of tacitly admitted it, but the NCAA has made it clear that they're going to continue to fight these CTE cases. And that is sort of what the NCAA was getting at here is they're not responsible. All these CTE cases that are sort of coming with, you know, perhaps uh, other issues, other complications and different things, the NCAA is going to continue to fight uh, to the extent that they can. Yeah, it's notable to look at the amount that the NCAA agreed to pay in that class action uh, settlement, $5,000 versus the $55 million dollars. Uh, that this plaintiff asked of the jury. Last question here on legal face-off, Landis, is what effect do you think this will have on other lawsuits? There's lots of other lawsuits. Many of us uh, who cover these stories were waiting for the Gee verdict uh, to see its impact on hundreds, if not thousands, of other similar lawsuits winding their way towards the courts that allege that sports caused brain injuries. What effect do you think this verdict last week has on those other lawsuits? I was going to make him stop and think about getting to a jury. You know, the NCAA now has something to lean on. It's certainly going to probably incentivize settling a lot of these cases. There's always been a lot of risk of going to the jury. Both sides knew that there was a lot of risk. I mean, you think about the NCAA, any ruling would have potentially led to millions and millions of dollars of new claimants, potential claimants. Any ruling would have done that for the geese. You know, they had, they could have gotten millions of dollars, but it could have gone the way that it did. And they knew those risks going into it. And now it's going to have that sort of chilling effect on people pursuing these at least all the way to a jury. And it's going to incentivize more settling because the NCAA now has a verdict to lean on to cite around the country. It's attorney Landis Barbary with Saffron Law Offices. 
Landis, thank you so much for joining us here on the show and WGN. And again, you can find more information on Landis on offthecourtdocket.com. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. It's time for the Legal Grab Bag segment here on the show. Kimberly Goldman, host of the Media Circus podcast, and Derek Mullen, vice president of claims with Seneca Insurance. Thank you both for hopping on today. Thanks for having us. The comments and opinions given by me are in no way reflective uh, of the representations of Seneca Insurance Company, Crum and Foster, or any other affiliated companies, including Fairfax. Former President Trump recently announced his 2024 run for the White House. That's not all he's been in the news for. He's had a pretty rough stretch in court lately. Rich, can you take us through what's been going on with the former president? Well, not just courts, but courts is the... Uh, Important uh, term here because Tina, how uh, about a bad day? I mean, you you know, you and I sometimes have uh, our share of uh, bad cases, bad days in court. Um, but man, Trump had a uh, a very bad day in five separate courts last week. Um, you know, I just say that thank God, uh, Tina Trump has uh, announced his candidacy for a second run of the White House because as a content provider. He is second to none. He is literally number one in terms of providing stuff for us to talk about on our podcast. So I say thank you, Trump. I'm the only one who says, by the way, thank you, Trump. But um, anyway, so let's go through these. In one day last week, it started in Manhattan, right? Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg uh, has brought a lawsuit against the Trump organization. This is a, a tax fraud case. And uh, Bragg, uh, that day, uh, basically said that uh, he will allow some testimony to go in that's very detrimental to Trump. He also beat up on Trump's lawyers pretty good, according to the transcript. Uh, moving on from the Manhattan case, uh, his same lawyers then hustle it to the New York State Supreme Court, where there's a case that is we've covered on the show before that is being brought by the New York Attorney General. And this is uh, a um, case involving uh, some other allegations involving the Trump organization. She's already been successful, the AG, in uh, placing a monitor in place and barring the Trump organization from operating as a business in the state of New York. The news that day was that they got set for trial. And that judge also was not very complimentary of Trump's lawyers. 
Did it end there? No, it continued. The third case that day was in Atlanta, where Trump's lawyers uh, were arguing in the Mar-a-Lago a document production case. The 11th Circuit beat up on another Trump's lawyer. That was Jim Trustee, um, said, what are we doing here? One of the judges said. So that wasn't a great day. Uh, then we were back to New York. In that case, we're now we've gone to uh, we were in circuit court. Then we were in state court now in federal court. And on that day, uh, uh, there's a rape case going forward. The judge allowed a defamation count to be added to the rape case. This is a, a rape allegation by a woman who has brought a lawsuit uh, against Trump under the new Adult Survivors Act in New York. That case is going forward. Finally, you can't get higher than the Supreme Court, right? Supreme Court last week on the same day agreed to not intervene in the uh, uh, tax case being sought against Trump. The tax records of Trump's are being, are being sought. He asked the Supreme Court to put an end to that uh, subpoena. Supreme Court failed to intervene. So, Tina, in the wake of all that, you would think that Trump would, you know, most people would think, let me cut my losses. I'm losing here. The trends are against me. What does Trump do? He almost doubles down and, uh, what, had dinner with uh, a couple of racists the other night. So it doesn't end. The only people benefiting are his lawyers. His, his lawyers are are doing great. But we know that he doesn't pay lawyers anyway, so they're probably not going to see a dime from all this. Yeah, no, Rich. I mean, he's going to be running for president, um, and there will be millions of people who are going to vote for him, notwithstanding. And, you know, it's just more of the same. I mean, you and I could seriously quit our jobs today and have a full-time podcast five days a week, pretty much all day, just following the developments of the former President Trump, both legally and otherwise. So, you know, I, I would like to just say a couple things. First, I think it's really sad that here we are years later and the political dynamics with respect to the presidential race and whatnot have not really meaningfully changed. And we still have a situation where we may have him running for president again. And Biden is saying that he's going to run again. And I think, you know, neither party seems to have meaningfully shifted in a way that's for the betterment of the country. So that's how we are where we are, Rich, is. And that's why somebody who's got all these lawsuits going on is actually running for president. He may actually be in jail. I mean, a lot of commentators are talking about how he could actually end up in jail and still be president because there's nothing that's um, that would prevent that from happening. Yeah, it's a great point. I think we're going to cover on our next podcast the legal question that, you know, we probably never thought we would have to face is whether a sitting president can be uh, in jail while he occupies uh, the, the the seat of president. But, Kim, I mean, how do you think it looks to voters? I think we know the answer. Um, but what is your perspective on how someone who is a litigant and a losing litigant in five separate legal actions, does that affect voters in some ways? Uh, it is, you know, uh, red meat to his voters because Trump uses these legal defeats to say, look, this is the witch hunt. This is evidence that the odds are stacked against me. The government is coming after me. 
Well, we're making an assumption that people are keen to what's actually going on and that they have the facts and that it isn't um, mired down in conjecture, conjecture and, and like political opinions and witch hunt and all those comments. So you have to consider the source and where it's coming from and how it's being presented. Um, the one case that I'm actually interested in is the one with the rape victim, um, because that is under the Adult Survivors Act, which a lot of people don't know about. So I appreciate you mentioning that. Um, adult survivors have one year um, until November 2020. 23 um, to file civil, case, civil cases against someone that they perpetrated um, that they believe has perpetrated a, a rape against them. So I am really paying very close attention to that. But again, I don't know that people are actually paying attention or do they care, um, unfortunately. Um, but it's always great to have legal legal judgments um, so that that's, there's some bite behind our bark. So that's what I think. Another tragic story that we've been covering in the newsroom here at WGN remains at a standstill per se, still getting some calls and whatnot into police stations. But two weeks after four University of Idaho students were stabbed to death in their rooms, a suspect still has not been identified. Is there a reason for this? And how, from a legal standpoint, how, how do we get further along in this? It seems like everything is just stopped. Yeah, Kevin, it's an incredibly tragic story, as you mentioned. And here we are, and it's been over two weeks. And even though police have gotten over a thousand tips have conducted well over 150 interviews and collected over 100 pieces of physical evidence, law enforcement still has not been able to identify a suspect. Idaho Governor Brad Little has actually directed up to a million dollars in state emergency funds to assist with the ongoing investigation. Many University of Idaho students just returned after fall break, and they and the community are very concerned and on guard about what has happened, particularly with the search ongoing for the killer. In fact, the local police department is getting dozens of calls reporting unusual circumstances and asking for them to conduct welfare checks on their loved ones who are local to the town. Um, people have been trying to connect dots in any way they can, including trying to connect these murders to two other stabbings that happened in the Pacific Northwest. One was a 1999 double stabbing in Pullman, Washington, and the second was a double stabbing as recently as a year ago in Salem, Oregon. But police say that there really isn't a meaningful connection among these three killings, although they do believe that these victims were targeted and isolated. They initially said that they didn't think that the public at large was um, subject to any meaningful threats, but they've since backtracked on that statement. So as many of us know, on the night of the murders, two of the four victims went to a sports bar and the other two were at a frat party. They all lived together in off-campus housing. There were two roommates who were actually at home when the police were called to the residence the next day at about noon. And the two surviving roommates had actually called other friends to the residence because they had found at least one of the victims and they didn't realize it at the time that the person was was dead. They thought that they were passed out. Someone from the house called 911 um, and then the cops came after a few folks from the house spoke to a dispatcher. When the police arrived, they found two victims on the second floor, two on the third floor. There did not appear to be any signs of forced entry or damage, and police believed that they were likely all attacked while they were asleep. 
While the police have been able to rule out some people, they have not been able to definitively identify any meaningful suspects. For example, they've ruled out the roommates. Um, they've ruled out people in the house who called 911. They don't think that the person that folks bought food from from a food truck or that the, pe- the person who drove to the victim's home had anything to do with it either. Um, hopefully, Rich, there's going to be a break in this case soon because... There are a lot of people who are understandably very upset and on edge right now in Moscow, Idaho. Yeah, I mean, lots of, you know, confusing things about this story, including why those two were spared or asleep on the same floor. I've seen lots of theories about, you know, you couldn't tell that they were there because of the setup of the, of the house. You know, I think whenever these stories get a lot of attention, you know, inevitably people are questioning why the police haven't arrested someone yet. And like what people don't get is uh, these investigations have to take time. I mean, we're talking about, you know, Moscow, Idaho. We're not exactly talking about a stabbing that happened in the middle of Times Square. Uh, This is a very rural area. It's a college town. By all accounts, there's not a lot of uh, ring camera coverage in this area just because, you know, people don't lock their doors. There hasn't been a murder there, I think, in like 20 years or something like that. So you're not going to have the same resources at your disposal as, as law enforcement as you would in other environments. Um, so I think you got to give it time as much as, you know, you want some closure and the families obviously are going through hell waiting to find out uh, the rest of the story. It's hard to get an answer very quickly. The FBI is now involved. Presumably they've got more uh, resources and better investigatory tools. But I think you got to get let the process play out a little bit um, um, and, and see what develops. But, uh, but Derek, what are your thoughts on, on this case? Well, uh... My first thought was, you know, I'm thinking about the movie Scream when nobody knew who the murderer was. And to me, it does appear to be somebody that knew them. Obviously, there was codes to get into the actual, uh, there was codes to get into the actual dorm. So obviously, the person had the codes to get into the dorm. And selectively, four people were selected to be murdered, but two people were left uh, untouched. Uh, to me, and I think it's long overdue, I really think the FBI needs to be involved in this case here uh, th- because they always say that usually it's the first 48 hours of any crime is the most important uh, part of the investigation. The longer this goes, you know, you have, uh, you know, some evidence can be tampered with. They're, they're worried about surveillance cameras being copied over now. So now they're trying to get every single surveillance camera available, trying to find out uh, if anybody had any ring cameras and, and try to connect the dots here. But uh, look, they put an ample amount of money into the investigation. I think that the, the police, in my opinion, at this stage of the game, they may be overwhelmed. They need really need uh, forensic evidence of uh, investigators. They need to get the FBI in there. They, they need to really turn up the game here to give some people, uh, at least these pe- the people in Idaho, a sense of uh, that something else is being done. Because a lot of people are saying the FBI should, should be involved. I don't know if the FBI is waiting to be called. Uh, it, that, it seems that's the stage. Uh, that's where we are right now. Uh, but this one here is, is really a mystery. I mean, if you look at it, people are going to say, "Okay, maybe the roommates were involved because they weren't touched, uh, or if it, or some or somebody gave this person a code, or persons gave them a code to go in and, and commit these murders." And then we have to find out what the motive is. We don't really know what the motive motive is at this point in time. So it's just a lot of unanswered questions at this point in time, which I'm still waiting on answers. And I think we, they, they really need to turn up the heat as far as getting the FBI involved in this. Tim, uh, your podcast, your excellent podcast is called Media Circus. We talk about media circuses. 
there are, uh, I don't know, hundreds, thousands of news crews descending on this small town. What effect do you think that has on uh, the investigation? Does it have, on the one hand, it might impede it, of course, because of all the spotlight. On the other hand, maybe it has uh, a spotlight effect on uh, more people, more eyes on this crime and, you know, more potential tips leading to an arrest. Um, I think it's a double whammy um, to your point that with more people watching more armchair detectives um, that sit uh, on the Internet um, and have tips and have ideas that if you have a, um, a a responsible police department, they have to vet all of those tips. And so sometimes um, during that process, they're also weeding out people that are just trying to insert themselves into a story that are just making things up, trying to turn, you know, take them off the beaten path. So, you know, I would caution people that as they're being armchair detectives to be sensitive and compassionate with what they're doing on the internet, because the families are watching, we experience it, we feel it. Um, my heart is was with the families um, and all of the first responders and everyone that's dealing with that. Um, I think as a society, though, we're very quick to, you know, we we watch CSI and we watch Law and Order and we think that within 10 minutes, we exactly know who the person is. And so we have this need to know immediately. Um, and so it does take time. You need time to build your case. You need time to find your evidence, like you said. Um, for all we know, the police may know and they don't want to tip their hand. Um, that's also a very real possibility here that they're not sharing too much Um because the more information that gets out, that obviously means that the killer then could potentially, you know, hide further away because they everybody knows the information. Sometimes they hold it so that when they do have a suspect, that person is the only one that knows exactly what happened. So I just say be patient um, as much as we can and let the let the professionals do their job. And yes, I agree. The FBI should probably be adding some additional resources. Certainly here on a local level, there's a story that kind of draws parallels to that. The Delphi, Indiana murders of Abigail Williams and Liberty German, that took five years. They just recently, you know, it seems to be a lot of parallels between these two. And hopefully it doesn't take five years to find whoever did this. But same thing, stabbings right. in a small town and a lot of things along those lines. And that's actually my point that the police department in Delphi um, were very tight-lipped about their information so that it wouldn't impede their process. And, um, you know, I think that worked in their favor as hard as that may have been for the rest of us and for the families. But, but Kevin, you raised Delphi. And Kim, that's a great point. You raised Delphi and it's really relevant and interesting. But and again, we don't have a ton of time. I don't want to get too far off track. But what are the common facts in both Delphi and, uh, and Idaho? We're dealing with uh, a lot of visibility on white victims. We've covered on this show before, Tina, missing white women syndrome. The common denominator is these are high-profile killings involving white victims. Do you think that it would get this kind of immediate attention if these victims were black or Hispanic or brown? Probably not, right? That's a big problem. And the fact that this continues to this day, the fact that we've got everyone from Entertainment Tonight to the news organizations descending on this college town to cover this murder of these, let's face it, very good-looking white people who are TikTok stars, would they be devoting those resources if these victims were of color? Probably not, right? So that's an unfortunate development that just keeps happening. I have to say that there is, you know, unfortunately, there is truth to that. I mean, you know, look at the situation in Mexico where the uh, they stated that the uh, young lady died of an accidental death. But it turns out that it was an actual f a friend that was on a trip with her that committed the uh, the murder. Say, so, you know, you can go way back into the early 60s when the, the, the civil rights where, um, you know, there was, you know, the, the woman that was working with the civil rights, she was killed. Um, and they did this whole investigation where, you know, uh, when when blacks 
you know, were, were killed during the civil rights times, et cetera. There was really nothing much done. And to this day, uh, a lot of the, you know, right, there, there is a fascination. Uh, it is a high profile type murder here, but, uh, but it, there is a, a, a different disparity uh, it's regarding resources when it comes to a, a minority uh, compared to uh, someone who's a, a non-minority. So that that's pretty true, and that's been pretty consistent. Um, I can't explain to you why. It's, it's this age-old question. You know, once it's, well, they're white, so they're going to get uh, the benefit of the doubt, and um, they're a little Susie Q, et cetera. Now, somebody else that's maybe from the inner city, and there's tons and tons of people who are missing uh, still can't be found you on the news all the time. You look, this person's been missing since 2008 and they can't find this person. So, yeah, so it's, 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 I think it's also where you're located as well. So if you're in a rural town like that, you, you're probably going to have, you know, be able to put more resources towards that one to where if you're in an inner city and you deal with all this crime, et cetera, there's just not a lot of resources uh, put towards uh, one in particular case. Let's head back to the uh, sports world for a moment. Dwayne Killings is the head coach of the Albany men's basketball team. He's being sued by a former player for both assault and battery. The player alleges that Killings threw him against a locker prior to a game against Eastern Illinois. Some Bobby Knight uh, action there, it sounds like. Uh, Rich, how do you go back and prove something that happened in a locker room? Well, I mean, there's some witnesses who uh, support the allegation that there was some contact, not necessarily that he was thrown up against the locker. That resulted in the school actually putting the coach on a five-game suspension. What brought this to our attention, Tina, that was interesting is two things. I mean, I think there's a recent phenomenon, we've covered this on the show, of athletes taking legal action when they feel wrong. Part of the allegation in this case was that not only was he assaulted, but he was blackballed. You know, he was, uh, uh, the coach spread the word that this player was not coachable and was a problem uh, player. And that resulted in him not being able to play uh, again. And these days, uh, as Derek knows, being a big fan of, of college basketball, the, the travel or the transfer portal is everything, right? If you don't work out of the university of Albany, you could transfer very easily to another school. The allegation in this case is that he was not permitted to do so because of uh, these statements by the coach. Number one, the other important part of the story, Tina, is that there's a race uh, allegation that speaking of civil rights, the allegation by the white player, the plaintiff against the school and the black coach is that uh, there was a civil rights violation because the school chose to not terminate the coach because he was in fact black. So uh, kind of a, a reversal of a lot of you know lawsuits we see involving civil rights. The allegation by the white person in this case was that his civil rights were violated because race was being used as a factor which, you know, when you're dealing with uh, federal, um, you know, acts, race should not be a factor. So a couple of interesting parts of this story, you know. Yeah, no, I agree, Rich. And ultimately, I think what we're seeing, as you alluded to, we're, we've covered a number of stories that have similar themes. And number one, I think the whole race, um, you know, allegation is going to be a tough one for him to prove, as we've discussed earlier in other shows with similar sorts of fact patterns. And second, I think, you know, this probably was one of the only things that he could do to address the fact that he had been blackballed. And 
Also, we're seeing less of a tolerance for abusive behavior by folks in sports, whether it's players or whether it's coaches. So I'm not sure that this necessarily would have been a lawsuit a number of years ago, but given the totality of the circumstances and what we've been seeing recently, I can't say that I'm surprised that this has resulted in a lawsuit. Derek, let's talk about the uh, phenomena first. I know you're a big fan of lots of sports, in particular college basketball, and you're the father of two daughters who have played college basketball at a very high level. So I think you have, I'm sure you have some opinions on this case, but listen, when you and I came up playing sports, uh, you couldn't talk back to your coach, let alone file a lawsuit against them. This is something that is uh, a product of today's culture. Not necessarily a bad thing, maybe, but what are your thoughts on on that? Should coaches be liable for things that happen in the locker room, or are those sort of, you know, sank, uh, you know, sank uh, special places that should be beyond a, a a lawsuit? Well, if you look at if you look at sports in general, if this was a football player that happened in a locker room or during a football game, are we going to really get much press out of that? I mean, you see them arguing on the sideline, the coach will grab them by, you know, I remember my coach used to grab me by the shirt and, you know, and then lift me up in the air because I was very small back then. But, you know, look, I actually, to be honest with you, I've seen Luke play. Uh, he plays for, he played for Stepanek, uh, you know, because he played the area. He's from White Plains, so I know him. The, the thing with this case here, however, is that he has a relationship with this assist, this coach. This coach was an assistant coach at Marquette when Luke was at Marquette, and then when this coach got this head coaching job at Albany, Luke transferred to Marquette. But, you know, it is a precarious situation because my daughter attended school, and then she transferred. Um, and you're always worried about a, a coach bad-mouthing a player to all – because all these coaches talk with uh, amongst each other, and you can really blackball a player. Uh, for them to suspend this guy for five games, something went down. Somebody knows what happened there. You're not supposed to put your hands on players. They should have known that back from Bobby Knight um, and Neil Reed situation when he tried to choke the guy. Uh, so it, it's one where, you, you know, if, if, it's, if the allegations are true, it, 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 it basically ruined his career from getting another, another scholarship. So um, it's, it's, I mean, not playing basketball or playing something or doing something you love anymore, it's, it's really damaging. It can damage you mentally, um, you know, so especially when you're not ready to stop playing. So I think there, they are, there are some issues here, and it's all about proof. I mean, if there's some proof out there where some other players are saying, look, something did happen, and look, something may have triggered this coach to do this. I don't know what Luke said to this, to, you, know, to, you know, to Coach Killings. I don't know what happened, yeah, vice versa. But, but it's it's something that the university is going to have to address because obviously if something did happen, you suspend them for five games and you get pressure from an outside organization to, uh, you know, you, you, know, you can't fire this guy. Then there's obviously there's, there's some collusion going on there and it has to it has to be ironed out. Somebody should be held accountable at this point in time. Let's on to topic number four here on the legal grab bag here on the legal face off with WGN Radio, a song everyone knows. Uh, it has may have a former Arizona gubernatorial candidate, Kari Lake, in trouble. Wixen Music Publishing, the owners of Tom Petty's Won't Back Down, has now issued a cease and desist letter to Lake, saying she is using the song to promote a failed campaign and that the lyrics indicate that she will not concede that she lost that gubernatorial race. Is there a legitimacy to this here, Tina? Well, 
Uh, I'll actually jump in on this one first. Uh, I want to get your thoughts, Tina, but uh, I think the key word here is failed, right? I mean, Carrie Lake uh, has been called Trump in heels, and uh, she refused to say before the election whether she would abide by the election results. She said, well, if they're fair, you know, she gave the standard, um, you know, answer. Well, I'll only agree if it's fair and then what is fair. So, you know, she's still rumbling about uh, not losing the election, but she lost. Right. Um, and it's ironic that uh, we're talking about I won't back down because she, again, said that she will not back down to this allegation that the election was stolen from her. But, Tina, like we've seen in many cases involving the misappropriation uh, of songs by mostly political officials, sometimes others, uh, you know, artists are taking a stand more than ever. You know, back in the day, you would be campaigning and you'd use whatever song you want. And there wasn't the press that there is now. There wasn't the social media. And a lot of times these artists wouldn't know about it. And they wouldn't really have the power to fight back. In this case, immediately we see the reaction of the publishing company, which owns the rights to the song. And they say, no, not only are we not allowing you, that if you continue, we're going to sue you. Um, not just because you're not uh, you're not using it with our permission, which is a problem, as you know, Tina, but also because your message is diametrically opposed to our message and importantly, the message by, by Tom Petty. So good to see an artist and a publishing company stand up for uh, their vision, both from a sort of philosophical standpoint, but also from a legal standpoint. Don't use music you're not entitled to. Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty simple, Rich. I mean, this is pretty cut and dry. I mean, just a couple of comments to your point about how we're seeing more and more of this. Um, I think it's because the political climate is so polarized at this point that, um, you know, and people either are for or against people in a very strong way. And in those instances where people don't support a particular candidate to have their song affiliated, well, first of all, used without permission, but second, to be affiliated with them. um, I think they're worried about their fan base. They're worried about people taking um, some messaging from an unauthorized use that doesn't um, get stopped immediately. They're taking messages about what that artist believes and they're concerned that it's going to impact their fan base. I mean, I think my the first recollection I have of a political candidate using a song was when, it was when Clinton used Don't Stop by Fleetwood Mac over 30 years ago during his campaign. Um, and I remember, I think Fleetwood Mac joined him on the stage as he was um, campaigning. Um, but, you know, times have changed a lot. And... I think that, you know, I'm glad to see that you've got candidates doing this. My word of caution to musicians and other artists whose IP is being licensed by licensing agencies is to make sure that these licensing agencies have very definitive meets and bounds about what they can and cannot license your music for. Because if you, oftentimes this type of use could theoretically be allowed by an agency unless you tell them not to allow this. So you've got to work very closely with your licensing agency. It's a, gr- it's a, it's a great point. And, 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 you know, I think our listeners know, but if you don't like the trend as Tina is, is talking about is every artist is selling their catalog for major dollars. Springsteen sold his for 500 million. And actually in the Howard Stern interview that was recently released on HBO, he asked him about that. And Springsteen's answer was exactly what you said, Tina, which is, Hey, I can't complain about using a song in a car commercial. That's the bargain that you make when you sell your record for $500 million. You don't have a say anymore. So you're right. Most of the contracts allow 
pretty broad use. That's why you're paying that much to use it as you see fit. But Kim, and actually Springsteen was one of the most famous, uh, you know, misappropriation examples back in the Reagan era when Reagan, in his second election, a re-election, his first re-election campaign, he used "Born in the USA," and famously he misappropriated that because he said, "Oh, it's a rah-rah song about the USA." Springsteen fought back and said, "Stop using it. This is an anti-Vietnam song. It's not a patriotic song." Anyway, Kim, what are your thoughts on these type of uh, actions and Carrie Lake using the petty song in this way? Well, I, I am not a, a legal person, but I'm glad that my intuition was the same as what you just said, Tina, that, um, you know, if, if you license it, then unless you put the specific boundaries around what you can license it for, it's kind of up for grabs. I mean, I understand the philosophical argument, but music and art, it's all subject to interpretation and how you apply it. So I feel like that's a lesser argument, but if they didn't license it and they didn't follow the proper legal steps to be able to use the music and the way that they are allowed to use it, then that's the forum, uh, the path that they should be taking. But the, it doesn't believe, it doesn't mesh with my, my intention. Uh, I, I don't know that that's a great argument to come back with um, because my interpretation of a song is going to be different than yours. Um, uh, but I don't know. This one was kind of like, eh, I, I just feel like we're nitpicky sometimes. Um, but, and I don't think that his base is going to be worried because his base is probably not paying much attention to what Carrie Lake is doing and probably know that where Tom Petty's heart is, is not where Carrie Lake's is. Um, but the law is the law and you got to follow the process. And if you're not doing what you're supposed to, then. <laughs> Derek, that's a great point. Derek, my advice to Carrie Lake is just use the one song that Trump uses always. I'm proud to be an American. Or at least I know I'm free. And everyone who follows Trump, just use that song. That's been vetted. It's been approved. Just keep using that song. And, and apparently the bass loves it. Trump's bass loves that song. Just use that one. Leave Petty alone. <laughs> Let's hop over from one iconic song to another. Uh, despite perhaps the most popular Christmas song ever made, I'm sure everyone on this panel's heard it maybe three, four times already after post-Thanksgiving. Uh, Mariah Carey's uh, All I Want for Christmas is You. Despite having this song and it being so popular and hearing it everywhere you go, she cannot have the title Queen of Christmas. Kind of a fun title, so I'm sure she's bummed about that, but it's been ruled that she cannot have it. Why is that? So, Kevin, we actually covered this story a bit ago um, when news first broke that Mariah Carey was trying to trademark as a brand Queen of Christmas with the United States Patent and Trademark Office as well as the brand's, brand's Princess Christmas and QOC. She has a company that offers a range of products, including fragrances and makeup, as well as clothing, jewelry, and dog accessories. And she filed trademark applications to protect these with the United States Patent and Trademark Office. So, of course, in these times, um, it's needless to say that other purported Queens of Christmas came out of the woodwork and would have none of it, including Darlene Love, who actually said David Letterman, of all people, christened her Queen of Christmas nearly 30 years ago, as well as Elizabeth Chan, who describes herself as music's only full-time Christmas singer-songwriter. I didn't know such a person existed. But in any event, she was upset enough by Carrie's trademark applications that she opposed them in the trademark office on the basis that Chan herself had repeatedly been called the Queen of Christmas and was already using the brand Princess of Christmas. Chan apparently had a corporate job and in 2012 quit that job 
And she's released all original, all Christmas albums every year since 2012. In the opposition papers that her lawyers filed, they accused Mariah Carey of engaging in trademark bullying by trying to monopolize the title Queen of Christmas when lots of other people should feel free to use that term. Through a somewhat strange turn of events, Mariah Carey's legal team did not respond to the oppositions that were filed by the deadline and the Trademark Trial and Appeal Board, which is essentially the court of the Trademark Office, entered a default judgment, which means that Mariah Carey's applications are no longer going through the process. This hasn't stunted Carrie's love for Christmas. She's released a children's book called The Christmas Princess, and she's also released a holiday-inspired set of bath and body products. Chan is thrilled by the result and said all she wanted to do was make sure that there was not only one queen of Christmas because there are so many Christmas queens, past and present, that should also be able to use that moniker, Rich. Oh, man, I got two takes on this. Number one, how the hell do you call yourself the queen of Christmas and you let yourself get defaulted? You know how hard it is to get defaulted? Like, you know the the legal laziness that involved that has to be involved in, in defaulting and like how many chances you would get to fix that. So like, you know, maybe she should um, be the queen of lawyers and like hire better lawyers. Number one. And number two, like I was watching like millions of people, the Macy's Thanksgiving day parade the other day and, and on comes Mariah and she's singing uh, this, this song. That's her number one song of all time. And guess what? She's lip syncing and, and she, she has the words uh, on a teleprompter. Like, there's any song in the world that you should not need the words to. It's All I Want for Christmas is You. She sold like 75 billion versions of it. She still needs a teleprompter? Come on. Um, I was surprised by that. And uh, my last take, much as it was the last time we covered this, is here to four and here with, I want to be known as, uh, not the Queen of Christmas, but the King of Hanukkah. So I ask, uh, I ask you all to be referring to me going forward as the King of Monica and, and Tina, you're hereby engaged to uh, retain that title for me legally, and, and don't default me when you apply for that. Um, Derek, uh, should she be the queen of Christmas, or is that something that uh, others should get the benefit of? I, I should be the king of Christmas. I, I'm a great singer myself, actually. You know? But anyway, you know give, us a little, give us a little all, all I want for Christmas. I'm on that King Cole guy. You know, oh, if you anybody go. should be the king, he should be the king of Christmas. As far as the queen, I mean, look, we all know this was this to me was a money grabbing opportunity uh, by her uh, by her company. And I think a lot of probably the people who work under her probably said, look, this is we must trademark this here. You're the queen here. This is going to put more money in your pocket. So this was all a money grab. And at the end of the day, I think they looked at it and said, well, this is really a loser case here. Uh, we're just going to throw, throw something against the wall to see what sticks. And obviously, it was basically laughed out of court, to be honest with you. And, you know, look, Christmas is supposed to be Christmas for everybody. I think of my mother is a queen of Christmas. That's just how I think. But uh, Wait, we've got another litigant. We've got another... <laughs> Breaking news. Breaking news. Mullen's mom is a uh, party to the lawsuit. Kim, any thoughts on this or, or your favorite? Uh, I mean, it's just such the egos. That's all I keep thinking is ego, ego, ego. Um, it, I don't know all the specifics, but I feel like something around this came up with Kylie Minogue and 
Kylie Kardashian or one of the Kardashians with the same name. There was some issue with coining the name Kylie, like, so nobody else can use the name. I'm so confused by it. It just sounds like a big ego. and, And like Derek said, a money grab. And oh my gosh, of all the other things we could be talking about and covering and spending our time uh, focusing on this would not be the one for me. Merry Christmas, happy Hanukkah, happy Kwanzaa and all the other stuff and go on with your bad queen self, whoever you are. <laughs> Get hey, but hand up. Who, who, who in this call right now loves that song though? Let's see. Let's see some hands. I come up with a new one. Like that's a great song, but come on. If you're the queen, you should be knocking them out. Like uh. I, I dance every time it comes on. If it was on right now, I'd get up and dance for everyone. But the, I think we need a good one for the Jews. We need we need a good Jewish song. We don't really have a good one. We yeah, have the Adam exactly. Sand- we have Adam Sandler's now walking around calling himself the Queen of Hanukkah or the King of Hanukkah because he's got that one song. But. <laughs> we need more. The takeaway yeah. is more Hanukkah songs. <laughs> yeah. Great. We got one more quick one. A lawyer, Tina, who allegedly took things a little too far. I mean, we've covered <laughs> some crazy lawyering in, uh, on this show and, uh, was, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how Kim's going to feel about this story. She didn't, like, uh, she didn't like the Mariah Carey story. So um, an Ohio lawyer named Jack Allen Blakesley is now the subject of an ethics complaint after allegedly throwing an uncovered poop-filled Pringles can into the parking lot of the Victims Advocacy Center that he was in litigation against in Cambridge, Ohio, last November. At the time, he was representing a murder defendant, and the attorney who was representing the victim worked at that advocacy center. And the lawyer actually saw him throw the can from his vehicle into the parking lot and almost hit her car. He then drove off to court to attend a hearing in that same case. The lawyer, Blakesley, has pled guilty to disorderly conduct and littering, both misdemeanors, in connection with the incident, and he paid a fine and court costs. What's probably the most shocking, although I don't know what's the worst part of this story, is that he's allegedly done this same thing on at least 10 prior occasions, um, choosing locations to throw chip cans containing feces if he is unhappy about something. So this ethics complaint alleges that he violated ethics rules that ban conduct that adversely reflects on a lawyer's fitness to practice law. Um, This case that he was involved in for unrelated reasons, he's no longer involved in. What I don't understand, Rich, is how this guy got away with throwing uh, Pringle poop for as long as he did. No, that's what you don't get, huh? (laughs) Well, there are a lot of other things, part. but I mean, this guy gets away with this for like years. That, that, is a, that is a puzzling part. I, my fascination and problems go a lot, a lot deeper. I mean, because I read one version of the story where, and, and there's one key word that differentiates one story from another, and the word is his. Okay. Now, if it's his poop, I got my mind thinking of a whole you know, range of things. Like, why a Pringles can? I mean, I don't know. I don't want to get too graphic, but like logistically, that would just seem difficult, you know, Uh, (laughs) like talk about like an M.O. Like we talked earlier about, like, you know, establishing praxis and and pattern like 10 times. Man, that's not an accident. Like, you know, you you can maybe understand how you get it. I know you can't understand it, but, you know, one time, maybe, but like 10 times of your poop in a Pringles can and like, I don't know, same Pringles, different Pringles. Like, are you going like. You know, regular Pringles one time doesn't matter. I don't know. Lots wrong with this. 
not a good story. Tim? I I actually I once I got so much, yeah, no, once I got over the 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 what the block factor, um I, I'm actually glad that it reached an uh, the the ethics um um whatever you just said the ethical complaint, I'm sorry. The no um, poop department. The no poop department, because I I I do think um that there are many attorneys that do uh, act unethically and do act in ways that are not um, reflective of the court standard and the legal standard. And it's very hard for civilians to to raise that to the bar association. I myself have tried to do that with attorneys in the past and I've been denied. And it's very hard to keep making improving your case that a, a, a behavior on behalf of a of a, um, a lawyer is unethical. So, um, I mean, this one, when you ask why it hasn't happened, why they haven't come to this conclusion before is maybe nobody filed anything, you know, I mean, who knows? Um, but this is, this is like beyond ethical. This is like borderline. Maybe there's some mental health stuff going on or like yeah. some other things. Um, but I mean, we can laugh at it, but I, there is a standard that we should be upholding and we should be expecting. And I'm glad that there was an action that was taken that is hopefully um, stopping this person from being able to um, act in that capacity. Because what else are they doing that is unethical besides just throwing their crap around? Yeah, there's no metaphorical question. space. And yeah. There's no question. I mean, excellent points. Derek, I mean, listen, you deal with lawyers every single day. Uh, I'm sure you've seen some egregious behavior. What's short of poop in Pringles? What's the most egregious example of uh, attorney malfeasance that you've seen? Malfeasus, no pun intended. Oh, my God. You, you, see, what I, <laughs> Sorry. you see what we did there? <laughs> see, I can wow. find the humor. <laughs> well, I do actually have a story. When I first started in the industry, um, the attorney was attorney was very upset about, you know, uh, the case was denied, et cetera. So, you know, I, you know, I get a call into the uh, guy in the mail room, say, hey, a box will arrive for you. Yeah, and I shut the box, and then he stuck a couple of toothpicks in there. And these some of the odor came out, and they finally said, "This guy just uh, shipped us a. This attorney just shipped us a box, and uh, you know, so you know, we we turned it over. You know, we turned it over to the New York uh, Lawyers Association to see what they were going to do, and you know, and, and then you know, it was one where you know we had some judges speak to you know speak to his attorney, and you know, he, at the end of the day, they claimed that he was off his medications. And uh, he's a, he was schizophrenic and, you know, he was, his business was going under. So that, that was the most egregious, outrageous uh, attorney uh, claims professional situation I've ever witnessed. Well, let's get back to Journey real quick before we get on out of here with the legal grab bag segment. What's going on with the Journey band member? Seems like, you know, it's just been a lot of debates and arguments over money over the last couple of years. And now there's another element to this. I mean, yeah, they continue to to sue the hell of each other, and I mean, there's the great thing is they're still touring. It's like they're fighting like cats and dogs legally. Tina, this one happens to involve uh, an allegation by uh, Jonathan Kane against Neil Sean, both who are OGs. They're the last remaining original members of the band. They're suing each other because one of them says you're misappropriating the Amex. It's like, you know, what less rock and roll story do you want to hear? Like, I want to hear about you know. <laughs> drugs and parties. I don't want to hear about interest bearing credit card accounts, you know, <laughs> like, oh my God, you you missed the you missed the deadline to pay our Amex. Damn you. Well, that's not rock and roll. But yeah, the allegation here is that one of them is misappropriating the Amex and the other is not getting statements. Like, I don't know, figure it out, journey is my message. Yet they're still on tour. You know, the beauty of rock and roll team, you could sue your bandmate for 
credit card violations and then uh, sit next to them for stone and love. The mystery How of does that home. really work? You know, I mean, ultimately, if these guys can't get it together, which, you know, they've been a band in turmoil for well over 30 years at this point. I think a lot of us remember seeing the behind the music expose about Journey where um, Steve Perry was, you know, exposing all his dirty laundry in a very long show about all his issues with his former bandmates. And there's just been, you know, turnover. There's just been a lot of drama. And it's sort of at the point where the music's great and all, but the drama far outweighs the music. And I don't know. I mean, these guys, I, I don't know how this works, but at some point they're probably going to have a replacements moment where they all, they're in the middle of a song and then they all walk off stage and it's over. Yeah. I mean, we never, we never heard about like, you know, the Beatles fighting about their diner's club card or anything. It just a little sours you on the whole band, but then we'll end off with uh around the horn. We already asked when we first covered another journey lawsuit, many episodes ago, everyone's favorite journey song, we'll go around the horn and go back to Petty, right? We all, many of us love Petty favorite, uh, favorite Petty song. Uh, Kim, do you want to start off? Do you have a favorite Tom Petty song? Uh, mm. um, oh, my put goodness. Right you did put me right on the spot. I was going for Journey. Um, yeah. I, I actually like I Won't Back Down. Um, I probably know his songs more from the lyrics and the title. Um, yeah. But uh, no, I, I love I Won't Back Down. Um, that, that despite how Carrie Lake uses it, um, it speaks to me and, <laughs> and uh, feels very empowered. Mullen, do you have a favorite Tom Petty song? I have to uh, follow Kim on this and say I won't back down. But from the movie Recount, I was always a big fan of anybody's sort of movie Recount, the Florida Recount. It was Kevin Spacey. They used that song throughout the uh, at the end of the movie. But uh, I'm a big fan of that song. Kevin, do you have a favorite Tom Petty song that's not I Won't Back Down? That's not in the title of one of our subjects earlier today? Actually, yeah, I'm a I'm I'm a big Tom Petty fan. I like You Don't Know How It Feels is probably oh. my favorite just because... It's true. Some people play, oh, I totally know what you're going through. You may understand parts of it and you may have parallels to your own life, but I think everybody goes through things differently. So I think that that song has a lot of good meaning to it. So probably my favorite, but I mean, still, you can't, can't go wrong with uh, Don't Back Down. It's a great one. Tina, you love Petty. I do love Petty and there's so many good songs, but two of my all-time favorites are You Got Lucky and Running Down a Dream. Mm, those are great good ones. My favorite is uh, a song called, uh, well, I got a couple. I mean, I love Petty, probably one of my top five, but um, I love The Waiting, early, early song off uh, one of his early albums. And uh, a plug here for uh, the uh, Trial by Vinyl episode of our podcast, in which we debated which is the greatest Petty <laughs> album of all time. So you can check that out wherever you find your podcast. Convenient segue. And, uh, Kevin, we want to thank all our guests for a great legal face-off today. Yeah, certainly so. Big thanks to everyone that hopped aboard today. Uh, thanks for having me, first and foremost, including uh, Kimberly Goldman, the host of the Media Circus podcast, Derek Mullen, Vice President of Claims with Seneca Insurance, Landis Barbie, David Balto, Cook County Sheriff Tom Dart. Thanks, as always, to our producers, Yvonne Barbosa and the tireless Ben Anderson and Tina and Rich for all of their insight today. Thanks for listening to The Legal Face-Off here on WGN. We'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. Take care. It's Christina Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face-Off. 
Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget the...